I'm going to invite you to take a copy of the scripture. If uh, you didn't bring one with you, whether in book or app form, there is red ones uh, in the uh, rack in front of you in your pew. I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Ruth and keep it open there. Because as we go throughout this morning, we are going to be reading uh, sections of it. Uh, Just to place this in the context of where we are as a church community this uh, summer, we are looking at the great stories, some of the great stories in the scripture. We, We think that the whole Bible is actually a great story that it has a plot it has a narrative it has uh um some drama and uh and the 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 narrative of the scripture uh culminates in the person of jesus and who he is and all that he has accomplished for us but the the bible is also made up of smaller stories so there's the big story of the bible and then there's these uh stories within the story that um really give our shape to the scripture And so we couldn't talk about stories all summer long without getting into a love story, right? Who loves a great love story? All right. What's your favorite love story? Doug, I saw your hand up. What's your favorite love story? Oh, Ruth? Oh, the one you're in, the one you're living. Yes. boy. We're going to be comparing Doug to Boaz in a little bit. Here we go. A rock star. All right. What's your favorite love story? I'm looking. Most of the guys in in the room have kind of glazed over at this point. Love? Esther. All right. Talked about that last week. Favorite love story? Jesus' love for us, great answer, can't top that. What's your favorite book or movie, love story? Scarlet Pimpernel. Take your word for it. Come on. Tale of Two Cities, okay. Charles Dickens. Pride and Prejudice. Jane Austen. All right. I'm showing off. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite love story? Nothing modern. Nothing modern. All right. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here we go. Right. We're not a, we're not a big loving group here. We're not a... Sabrina, okay. Never heard of it. Sorry. The Notebook, okay. Yeah, knew that one was coming. Maybe didn't expect it from you, Jackie, but yeah, whatever. That's great. All right. Yes, we love a great love story. We're in one. And we're going to see that, actually, that we're living in a great love story, as some have already alluded to this morning. We... The great love stories, usually there's a, an element of uh, that the two parties who are in love, the man and the woman, are, uh, there's un, they're unlikely, right? There's some, there's some surprising element to it that, that these two shouldn't be together, and yet this undying love uh, 
is, uh, is bringing them together. And there's, there's an element of surprise to it. And, and we'll see that in the story of Ruth as well, that we have the, uh, a story of a, of a destitute widow and a, and a nobleman, a land baron. And, uh, and so the come to, they come together uh, in marriage. Now, the story of Ruth, however, needs to be read uh, it really makes no sense that this story is in the Bible unless we can read it as a picture of our humanity's desperate need for redemption, for freedom, to be included, and all that by God's grace. So let's dig into this story of Ruth. And I'm going to begin reading the first five, chap- first five chapters, first five verses of the first chapter. In the days when the judges ruled, okay, so that places us. We're here in between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. So Israel has come out of Egypt. They're in their promised land, but they don't yet have kings, okay? So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Judah, Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons, and her husband. So in these five verses, we've got a famine, two marriages, and three deaths. So Naomi is the, um, is the matriarch of this family. And we're actually going to be speaking about Naomi and her story next week. This bitter woman who's lost so much. And so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna touch on her story and go through her story Next week, so we're not going to dig too much into into her today, but uh, but Elimelech and Naomi live in a town called Bethlehem. I'm not sure if you've heard of that town before. It means place of bread, house of bread, and uh, un- unfortunately or ironically, this uh, town, this region, is in need of bread. There's a famine, and so they travel east from Judah in Israel to Moab. Now, in the scriptures, going east is usually bad. When you, just a general rule, if you go east, it's bad. If you go west, you're on the, on the, right, on the right road. So th- this is a bad decision. Biblically, this was a bad decision for Israelite people, for Jewish people to leave Israel and go to Moab. Now, Really, the story opens now with three widows, right? Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. Now, Orpah and Ruth, the daughters-in-law, were Moabites. And you say, well, what's the big deal about uh, them being Moabites? Well, it's actually quite bad. It's, it's sort of like inviting jihadists to your bar mitzvah. I'll let that one sink in a minute. In a minute. Moab... Let's get, well, just to give a background on, on what Moab is all about, why that's so bad, why it's like inviting jihadists to your bar mitzvah. Moab began with uh, the, the family of Lot. You Maybe you remember in Genesis, we have Abraham and Lot. Lot goes and lives near Sodom and Gomorrah. He barely makes it out, 
with his life, right? God's raining fire and uh, uh, down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his daughters make it out. His wife, not so much, turns into a pillar of salt. So Moab be, is, the, is kind of the result of an incestu- incestuous union between Lot and his daughters. Bad start to Moab. Continues, Moab, you may, have, may remember in uh, the book of Exodus, had a king named Balak who hired a prophet named Balaam and paid him a, tried to pay him a large sum of money in, in order for Balaam to put, pronounce a curse on Israel. Didn't actually end up happening. There was a donkey that was talking to Balaam and all of that. The, Moab is the enemies of Israel. In Judges chapter 3, we, you can read about how Moab oppressed Israel for 18 years. Like oppression, full-on oppression. Moab was actually under a curse from God. You read about this in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 23. It's on the screen here where God says uh, through, through um, uh, Moses, No Ammonite or Moabite might enter the assembly of the Lord, which means they will never be put in community, in God's community. They'll never be, no Moabite can join God's people. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you, you shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Don't wish good on any Moabite, God is saying. They're never allowed to enter into relationship with God. You see, in God's big story, the Moabites serve as the most dramatic picture of those who are under a curse by God and who are cut off from relationship with God. To be a Moabite was to be as far as possible away from a relationship with God. You're under God's curse. There's no way for you to enter in. And so Naomi decides to return to Israel. And she urges her daughters-in-law, stay in Moab. You don't want to come back with me. It's, you know, Naomi knows that if Ruth or Orpah were to come back and return to Judah, to Bethlehem with her, that they would be the lowest of the low. They'd be on the bottom of the bottom. So let's pick this up. Chapter 1, verse 16. Naomi is urging her, go back to your people. Go back to your gods. Don't. Don't come with me. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll also be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So Ruth makes this pledge to Naomi. Sounds almost like marriage, right? Like a marriage pledge. Until death do us part. Now it seems admirable, but it makes no sense. She understood the law of God, that she was outside and excluded. She knew the time. She knew Ju- Judah. She knew Moab. She had no chance. So why do it? And I think the key really 
is that it's more than just she was doing this to take care of Naomi. She's saying, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Her choice to follow Naomi to Israel is based on her belief in the goodness of Israel's God. She trusted. She somehow had some trust that she would not be received by the letter of the law, but that she would be received by the spirit of grace. So let's pick this up. Chapter 2. Ruth returns with Naomi to Bethlehem. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. Boaz means in him is strength. Uh, Which means more than he was strong. He was a man of standing, a man of valor, a man of honor, a man of nobility. And Ruth, verse 2, the Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So we're introduced to Boaz, the nobleman, the land baron. And it so happens that Ruth begins to glean in the field, in a field belonging to Boaz. Now, gleaning is sort of like the welfare system of the day. What, what gleaning was all about is that uh, the Israelites were commanded that as you're harvesting your wheat, as you're harvesting your barley, as you're taking in your crops, if you drop anything, you're not allowed to pick it up. If you drop something, if anything hits the ground, don't pick it up. And, they were, and, and the farmers were also told not to go to the edges of their fields. It's kind of like how our peach farmers don't pick the, the, the trees right along the road. They, that's, that's for us to do, right? It's kind of like that. If you're not from Niagara, yeah, that's not cool. That's, they're not your peaches. Don't, don't, don't do that. So you read about this in Leviticus uh, 19, verse 9 and 10. God says, don't pick up anything that falls on the ground. Don't harvest to the edges of your field. Those are for the poor. Those are for those who are in need. And so Ruth, as someone who is destitute, who has no opportunity for income, goes and gleans. And it so happens, she, feel, she ends up in Boaz's field. And, and she says in, uh, in verse 2, in, uh, I'm going to go pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now, favor, I would argue, is one of the key words in the entire book of Ruth. It's a, it's a word that comes up again in, here in chapter 2, verse 10 and verse 13, and again later on. And it's a word that means uh, more than kindness. It means kindness. It includes It includes an element of grace, in whose eyes I find kindness, in whose eyes I find grace. So again, she happens to be in Boaz's field. And so what we need to understand here is that Boaz literally is the Lord of the harvest. Boaz is Lord of the harvest. And she happens to be in there. 
So start warming up the violins, because here we go. Like Boaz, we have to, we, we have to see here, Boaz. There, in this whole story, there is nothing wrong with this guy. He's perfect. He's perfect. There's no fault that we can see. There's no hint of any fault in Boaz anywhere in this whole story. And so if Ruth plays the role of hopelessness and alienation, one under the law, Boaz plays the role of redeemer and freedom giver. And Boaz is clearly meant for us to see as an embodiment of God's grace and God's favor, that, w- that Boaz is meant to show us what God's grace, what God's favor is like. That's what's happening here. Chapter 2, verse 4. Just then, Boaz arised from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvester, whose young woman is that? He said it like that, too. (laughs) The foreman replied, She is the Moabites who has come back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. So again, Boaz is here embodying the characteristics of the grace of God. And that's how I want to examine this story as we go forward here. What is God's grace like? How is Boaz demonstrating God's grace? And the first, the first thing is that grace initiates. Grace initiates. Ruth knew the law. Ruth knew that she could not approach Boaz. That Boaz had to take the initiative and approach Ruth and begin to speak to her. It's always that way. The greater always has to move towards the lesser. And it's the same for us and our Lord of the Harvest. By God's grace, he always initiates. He speaks the first word to us. He takes the first step. His eye is on us. His eye is on you, and he's speaking to you, and he's even taking initiative with you this morning. He's calling you by name and saying, I want you to know what my grace is like. So grace initiate. Grace also provides. You see, the grace of Boaz secures access for Ruth to his fields. Right? His grace says... Don't go to another field. Just follow my guys along. Follow my, my employees and pick, take from me. And you, we have to see, too, that this is at cost to him. This is at great cost to him. That he's providing for Ruth and, for, and by extension, Naomi, at great cost to himself. As we'll see, he's going to tell people, his employees, hey, drop a little bit extra for Ruth. Now, he could have kept that. He could have kept that for his profits, for his own gain. But at cost to himself, he provides for Ruth. You see, friends, all we have is a gift from God. It's all a gift of God's grace. Everything you own, everything we have, the freedom, the peace that we enjoy is a gift of God's grace. And our hope for the future relies on God's future grace towards us. 
And see, that's why we can go with such confidence to God in our prayer. That he never sends us away empty-handed. He always provides the grace that we need. Now, he may say no to specific requests, and we've experienced that. But his, his response is never, no, get out of here. It's a throne of grace. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us go with confidence to the throne of grace. It's a throne of grace. And so we can go confidently because he always provides for us. He always responds to us. Thirdly, grace not only initiates, grace not only provides, grace also protects. Boaz says, I've told the men to keep their hands off you. Stay close to my female employees. Stay close. You see, you know, we, we, we love the statement, nothing can separate us from the love of God, as Romans chapter 8, right? Nothing in all creation, no thing, including yourself, can ever separate you from God's love that's in Jesus. And the reason for that is because it's grace that's joined you to him in the first place. You were never good enough to be joined to God's love, and so you can never be bad enough to be separated from it. Nothing can separate you because grace has joined us to God's love in the first place. Now look at, look at um, Ruth's response to the grace of Boaz, verse 10. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes? See that word again? Such grace in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner. You see, that's the proper response. We always respond to God's grace with worship, with a bowing down, with an acknowledgement of our unworthiness, but also a joyful receiving of it. She didn't say, well, no, 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 I don't deserve this, so I'm not going to take it. She wasn't so proud as to spurn his offer of grace, but she responded with thankfulness, with gratefulness, with worship. You see, when we understand that in spite of the law, God receives us by grace, our response is always of worship. Let's continue on. Verse 11 of chapter 2. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Again, a, a clue that, that Ruth's coming to Israel was meant to, it was motivated by a taking refuge under God and the goodness and the grace of God. She, May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. You see two more characteristics of the grace of God that Boaz embodies here. And the first is that grace exceeds. Grace is abundant. Grace is always over the top. God's grace is never um, just measured out. It's always lavished on us. You see, you see the grace of God in Boaz because he moves Ruth from a gleaner to a guest at the table. The law says pick up the scraps, but the grace of God says pull up a chair. And look, who feeds Ruth? 
Who's feeding Ruth here? It's Boaz. I mean, this guy's a rock star, right? A dreamboat. He's like Doug Peters. <laughs> this guy is perfect. He's feeding her. He's providing for her. He's protecting her. And he's saying, pull up a chair to my table. Why is Boaz depicted like this? Because he's a picture of Jesus. Because he's a picture of Jesus. The same Jesus who says in Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone opens, I will, and I will come in and I will eat with you. The same Jesus who says in Mark chapter 2 that, that, that he loved to sit down and eat with tax collectors and with sinners, with people of, of a bad reputation. He loved to, to gather around the table. You see, in the big story of the Bible, few things display the abundance of God's grace and acceptance of us more than the many displays of hospitality and feasting. You see, Israel's calendar was built around seven feasts that were all pictures of God saying, pull up a chair and let's have a party together. Seven feasts. And they were long feasts. They were week-long, seven-day feasts, parties. God's saying, let's celebrate together. You're a guest at my table. The whole calendar was built around it. First thing we're going to do in heaven, have a feast. First miracle of Jesus at a wedding feast in Cana. Our problem isn't that God's grace isn't enough. It's that, God, it's that we dine out elsewhere. We dine out elsewhere. We, we drink from broken cisterns. We drink stagnant water. We settle for hamburgers when there's steak. We go elsewhere. Verse 15. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some of the stalks for her and the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. An ephah is somewhere between 35 and 50 pounds of barley. 35 to 50 pounds. An average, a normal take would be about two pounds. The grace of Boaz provides instead of two, 35 to 50. It's like Jesus at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, where at, at the wedding where he makes wine. He makes 180 gallons of wine, some 900 bottles of wine. He provides, it's overflowing. Paul says in, in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 1, verse 12 to 14, he says, he says, the grace of God has overflowed in my life. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Grace overflows. Cornerstone, we don't glean grace. We have it lavished on us. We have more grace than, than, than we need. No matter what your past is. No matter what you've done. No matter how much you've forgotten about God this week, his grace is poured out on you and it overflows. It's more than you need. And he says, don't embarrass her. Don't rebuke her. Don't shame her. Don't shame her for her past. See, if you see yourself as an outsider, someone who's rejected, 
someone who's hoping to get a few scraps here and there, we need to remember that grace not only is abundant, grace not only exceeds, grace also forgets. Grace forgets. I love this verse in Isaiah 43, verse 25, where God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. I'm like taking the, 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 the permanent marker and I'm blotting them out. I'm crossing them out for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. What a promise. God says he's going to take our sins. He's going to throw them into the sea, the depths of the sea. It's like a sea of eternal forgetfulness. He's never going to remember your sin. So when you pull up a chair to God's table, he'll never shame you. He'll never shame you. And neither should we, friends. Some of us have a past. And you should never be shamed for it in the church. Never. God's grace forgets. Sixth, the grace of Boaz redeems. Let's continue on. Verse 18, chapter 2, 18. She carried it, the 50 pounds of barley, back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the dreamboat I worked with today is Boaz, she said. I think that's what the Hebrew says there. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth, the Moabitess, said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Grace redeems. The grace of Boaz redeems. That's what the story of Ruth really is all about. We ha- we're introduced to this notion of the kinsman redeemer. What's that all about? You see, when a woman is widowed, when her husband dies, it's the responsibility of the closest unmarried relative on the dead man's side to take this widow as his bride so that she would not be destitute. There were requirements for the kinsman redeemer. Three requirements. They must be a blood relative of the man who is deceased. They must be able to redeem, that is, able to buy back the, the land, able to, to, um, to fulfill these requirements of the kinsman redeemer, and they must be willing. They're never forced to do it. Never forced. Must be a relative, must be able, and must be willing. And as we read in chapter 3 um, and onwards, that there is a closer relative, but this man was not able or willing to be the kinsman redeemer. And so Boaz steps up and redeems Ruth, which is a great picture of God's grace to us through Jesus. So Boaz, to be clear, buys back the land that would have belonged to Elimelech and his sons, marries Ruth, 
It's a picture of God's grace to us through Jesus. What are the three requirements of the kinsman redeemer? Well, they must be a relative. We'll look, look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. That this is speaking of Jesus. He sanctifies those who are sanctified and all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. He's our brother. That's why we, that's why we make such a big deal out of Christmas. That Jesus is God become man. You see, our Redeemer needed to be a relative. Our Redeemer needed to be human. Our Redeemer needed to be of the same race. Needs to be related to us. And he's not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. Needed to be able. Needed to have the resources to redeem. We'll look at 1 Peter chapter 1. You were ransomed from the futile ways. Ransomed and redeemed. Very similar words. You were redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, Jesus has all the resources. He has what it takes to buy us back. And is Jesus willing? Well, Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, he says, I have authority to lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I, I, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, of my own choice, of my own will. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus willingly pays that price of his blood. And what's the result? What's the result of Jesus being our relative who is able and willing to redeem us? What's the, what's the result? Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens or Moabites, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're in his family. You're no longer a Moabite. You have a Redeemer who's saved you, who's transferred you into his family, into his household, who protects for you, who initiates with you, who provides for you, who cares for you, whose grace is abundant towards you, who redeems your life from destruction and who forgets all of your sins and your shame and will never bring them up again. We have a Redeemer. And lastly, as we conclude our time here in in the book of Ruth this week, grace gives life. Grace gives life. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. See, Naomi is not here just holding her grandson. Naomi is holding her redemption. Naomi is holding her security. Naomi is, her, is holding her salvation. Because we read in Matthew chapter 1, as the New Testament opens with this genealogy of Jesus, where we read of Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, which is a whole other story, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse's the father of David, the king. And as we go down, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, on whom, of whom was Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. 
You see, this is the line of the Savior. This is the line of the Redeemer, our Redeemer. This is our redemption. And when, you end, when you're redeemed, the, the beautiful thing here is that you don't just enter into, um, into like a legal contract of being forgiven. You enter into a love story. We're in a love story. You're loved by God. His love for you is steadfast and unshakable.